Welcome to Parenting in the Trenches. I'm Karen Peters, a registered clinical counselor, and I'm a mom. We're getting real about all things family from a mental health perspective. So let's get to it. Okay, welcome back to Parenting in the Trenches. I am with Dr. Julia Bledsoe today, who is a medical doctor and board certified pediatrician at the Pediatric Center Care Center at UWMC. I'm gonna, this is a mouthful and I'm dyslexic, so I'm gonna take my time with this one and try and decode some of this. Okay, so University of Washington Medical Center, correct? Okay, That's correct. Roosevelt and the Center on Human Development and Disability at UWMC. That's right. And a UW professor of general pediatrics. She also works as a faculty pediatrician at the UW FAS or fetal alcohol syndrome clinic and longest standing, which is the longest standing FAS center in the whole of US. Amazing. Dr. Bledsoe specializes in adoption medicine. People, I cannot be more excited about this discovery. I did not know there were people who specialized in adoption medicine. So the care of children and families who are touched by adoption is her main focus there. She strives to create active partnerships with her patients to achieve the best possible outcomes. Dr. Bledsoe um, earned her MD at the University of Washington she lectures and teaches on topics related to international and domestic adoption, especially where these things overlap with fetal alcohol syndrome. I am very eager to hear about how you got into this work. Would you maybe give us a little bit about how you followed this path, what got you here? And yeah, and a little bit about the work that you do specifically with the Center for Adoption Medicine. Well, thank you so much for that introduction. Um, and it's interesting when I think back, of course, I'm, you know, uh, 30 years into my career now, but um, I first became interested in uh, adoption medicine primarily because my husband and I adopted a little boy with cleft lip and palate from Korea in 1996. Okay. And um, it, our agency became interested in sort of putting referrals by me in terms of saying, hey, we had this kid with this birth defect, or we have this baby, we have this question, would you be willing to look at the paperwork? And it became clear to me that it was um, not only an interesting area of medicine, but also one that was sort of just beginning. And the very first international adoption clinic uh, in the US was at the uh, University of Minnesota and Dr. Dana Johnson, my friend and mentor, really um, sort of encouraged me to, you know, to work in this field. He said, you know, Julie, there's hardly anybody, you know, west of yeah. Minnesota doing this. And I think you'd really enjoy it. And I'd be, you know, happy to be your mentor and support you. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, when I first, when I came back to Seattle in 1998, um, I decided this was the area of medicine that I was most interested in. And so in my pediatric practice, uh, I started to continue to do sort of pre-adoption reviews, which is looking at paperwork for families who are adopting from overseas. And, you know, having a conversation with them about, you know, if I were adopting this child, what are some, some of the medical issues I'd consider, but also what are some of the behavioral and developmental issues that I would anticipate in this child? Uh, and I sort of started this clinic around the time there was a huge influx of 
primarily healthy children, healthy girls being adopted from China due to the one child policy. Right. And simultaneously, you know, in the early 2000s, there was also the availability um, of Russian orphans for families in the United States that were interested in adopting children. Korea, which is where we adopted our child from, has always had sort of a relationship uh, with the United States because of the Holt family, uh, who really started the first international adoptions with Amerasian adoptions from Korea. But um, as I started to see more and more children, um, particularly children from Russia and Eastern Europe, uh, one of the things that became very apparent was that many of these were children who were affected by alcohol and alcohol exposure prenatally. And so um, I was running back and forth with my files and my videos of children to the fetal alcohol syndrome clinic folks at the University of Washington saying, hey, is this FAS? Is this not FAS? Uh, yeah. And they said, you know, you need to come work for us. And it's really serendipity for me that fetal alcohol syndrome was first discovered at the University of Washington in 1973. This is the first place it was, the term was coined and it has the longest running clinic. And it's been a really interesting dovetail with my work with adoptees. Um, I will also say that, that while the first sort of um, international adoptions from Russia were primarily in healthy, in healthy children, China has moved more and more to a special needs pool. So when I'm doing medical reviews and I have a wonderful pediatric partner, Julian Davies, who's been with me now for 17 years. And um, so when we're looking at referrals, we're often seeing kids with birth defects. So we have a chance to talk to families about special needs, children in particular, and what they might anticipate in terms of medical care, what they might anticipate in terms of special things they should think about uh, if they adopt this child. Um, so as a, I'm just a general pediatrician, but I have spent the last, you know, 25 years primarily taking care of kids who are adopted. So I, for many of the children, I will have looked at their pre-adoption records. If they're local in Seattle, I have a chance to be their pediatrician. Mm -hmm. uh, I just said goodbye last week to a 22 year old who I met in paperwork oh. from Vladivostok, Russia. Unbelievable. So, yeah. So, and, oh. and it's, you know, it's a very rich field that I've really, really enjoyed. Um, and, you know, has, has been a very rich field of study for me. Yeah. Can I ask how accessible your services are? So does this, does this clinic run privately? Who can access it? Mm -hmm. What does that look like? I'm just curious before we jump into some of the questions I have that I'm sure that some ears are perking up of listeners who are either exploring adoption or have recently adopted and wondering like, ooh, is this something we could benefit from? Is that is that an option for people? Well, yes, it is. There's, I mean, we have, I would say with the pre-adoption consultations, only about 15% of the referrals I look at for families are local families. So okay. most of my pre-adoption work is actually out of state. Um, so I'm working with families, you know, on the East Coast, on the West Coast, up in Canada. Nice. Um, I think the farthest away we had a family living in uh, Bahrain who uh, oh. asked us to review their uh, their uh, adoption packet. Um, for taking care of children after adoption, mm -hmm. we do a fair amount of what we call the post-placement evaluation. 
And we now know that when we see internationally adopted kids, there are a certain set of labs and tests and evaluations that are recommended for those kids. Um, so some families will come to us just for a one-time post-placement evaluation. It's about a 90-minute visit, but we, you know, do hearing and vision and laboratory work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some families, I have a cute family who adopted a girl from uh, China, but they were living in Japan, and they would come to Seattle every year for her well visit. Uh, yeah. So we sometimes do one-time pediatric care, and then for people who are local, uh, we certainly can can follow them over time, just as their general pediatrician, with a twist. Incredible. What a resource. The, the, the aftercare I get, you'd want to find someone to add to your village that is close to home. Um, but I, you know, what struck me when, when I located you, um, was the goldmine of a resource it is to know who to go to when you're querying what, what a proposal might look like if you were to accept it. Um, and risk factors already, as an adoptive parent myself, I remember filling out those forms like four, 15, six, 15 years ago now, 16 years ago, and and remembering how like I got stumped on those. I could answer all the other questions. I'm like, yep, yeah, good on this. Oh, that's fine. Oh, here I'll be open about this, and this is my past, and this is whatever. I could do those things, and then I got kind of got stuck on question eight when it had these little ticky boxes of risk factors, and I'm like, I don't know it anything about half of these like so I'm a mental health practitioner I'm a clinician so I had some experience in mental health pieces and so I could say you know I, I feel competent in, in helping a child through their anxiety or through you know a history of mental illness in the family history but when it comes to drug and alcohol exposure in utero I don't know the first thing and I didn't know who to go to. So just knowing that that's an option. And now as somebody who in my work supports a lot of, of adoptive families, oftentimes that's the question. What if, what if six of these factors come toward me and I don't know what that combination means and we've got 24 hours to say yay or nay and I, that's a big decision, not knowing what I'm saying yes to and so many of course of motions right how do you say you're in it right. and there's a child in right. front of you and this is like this is the time where it's the not the time to want to research you're going to want right. some assistance with this so you know as as if we think about that period of time when we are preparing and confused and doing our research could you help us understand some of those categorical pieces around medical flags, things we should be paying attention to, know more about, and, and what are the key pieces we should know about? Yeah. That's an excellent question. And I remember very vividly, another one of my mentors in the field was Dr. Jane Ellen Aronson, who's in New York. And I remember her saying to me, our role as a consultant is to help the family make this decision with their head as well as their heart. Yes. And it is, that has stuck with me. Yeah, in uh, in that, uh, and I think you know, particularly the longer I'm in the field, what what you do realize is, um, there is this funny element of choice when you're looking at a pre-adoption referral, yeah. uh, and and for me, you know, I I never want to tell a family, oh yes, you should adopt this child, or no, you shouldn't. Right. What I yeah. want to look at is through the lens. Okay, if I were adopting this child, what would I be thinking about? And for me, sort of 
I, I, you know, I have a little bit of a system in terms of how I look at this information. Uh, one is to look, of course, at um, birth family history. Okay. And we know that many children relinquished for adoption are relinquished by parents who often can't take care of them for a variety of reasons, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's out of wedlock birth, sometimes it's poverty, sometimes it's mental health issues, and sometimes it's addiction, right? Mm -hmm. Substance use issues. And so I'm looking, you know, in terms of are there risk factors in the birth family history that could, you know, be inherited by this child or have an impact on their learning and behavior, you know, long-term. Um, so I certainly, you know, often look at the birth family history. Sometimes we don't have that. And of right. course, with China, where it's still against the law to give up your child for adoption, it's a little bit of a blank slate, right? It's a, yeah. it's a bigger leap of faith because we have none of that history, right. um, either of genetics or of exposures during pregnancy. Mm. Um, so that, you know, that is something that is different for every, uh, for every country. But, you know, in addition to birth family, family history, also looking very much at medical conditions, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, there are some special needs we see very commonly, and Dr. Davies and I have made it our, you know, practice to not only learn about special needs that come up all the time, but also be able to consult specialists. Um, yeah. So, you know, for example, a child with cleft open in palate, knowing what that means in terms of numbers of surgeries, these are possible outcomes, mm -hmm. uh, you know, these are, are things to, to watch for if you're taking on the special needs. So we often, with a special needs referral, will walk through that medical condition mm -hmm. and also engage specialists if we need to. Um, the other thing that is very important in adoption is environment. And, you know, when I first started, almost all of these kids were in orphanages. Right. And we know from years now of research about orphanage life is that the brain does have some impact from early childhood experience, right? Mm -hmm. And in an orphanage setting, that's often, you know, not, you know, not optimal attention, not optimal nutrition. Mm -hmm. And so we often, you know, in kids in orphanage settings, we look at them, you know, how are they doing compared to other kids in the orphanage? We expect them to not grow as well as kids in a family, but how how much is their growth affected? Mm -hmm. uh, and then for kids who are profoundly neglected or ki kids who are coming out of a situation where they experienced early childhood trauma, like abuse or profound neglect, yeah. we know that those things affect the developing brain just as much as prenatal exposures to alcohol and drugs, yeah. right? So it's yeah. it's looking at what are the things in this child's history the background, their location, that can help me say, gosh, you know, is this a kid at particularly high risk of a genetic syndrome? Is mm -hmm. this a child at particularly high risk of having poor brain development? I think that's important yeah. to talk about with families. So, you know, in terms of the consultation, that's really what I'm looking at uh, is, and then, you know, I, I, I'm very honest with the family is, um, you know, what are their expectations of this child, yeah. right? In terms of a special need and are, you know, I, and I, I very vividly again, remember doc, talking with Dr. Johnson and him saying, you know, you don't ever meet a pregnant woman who says, oh gosh, 
I ha I hope I have a child with profound disabilities, right? Yeah, <laughs> if they have if they have a child with profound disabilities, then everybody steps up to the plate. That's right. It's just knowing we don't wish that for people, right? right. But uh, and I think there are situations where we where it's very clear. I'll give you an example of a child whose brain is going growing extremely poorly, and when we see brains grow extremely poorly, particularly if they fall way off the growth grid, it, it dramatically increases the risk that this child will have intellectual disability, which means an IQ below 70. Okay. And if a family uh, already has children in the home and they're thinking about adopting, you really have to think not only of the ramifications of, you know, of yeah. this on you, but also you know, if this child requires lifelong care, the impact on your other children in the home on your financial state, I mean, there's some families that can can more easily afford That's the right. special services that these kids yeah. will require. So while those are hard conversations, I still feel like it's important, again, to make the decision with your head as well as your heart. I always find myself so much more comforted by people who are planning to adopt who have and open up the hard conversations, who I can witness being... Um, showing some capacity to have those hard conversations because that that I feel like okay then then the learning can happen and will happen and then you're intentional with your decisions there's purpose behind this and you understand what you're stepping forward for which is such a different place than if we are only being guided by a sense of hope for family or a sense of having a child and of course, we want to just close our eyes and say love is enough. I'm gonna, I'm just gonna say yes, and we'll figure it out. And I get that balance is tough because in most cases you will figure it out. But there are options to make this a, a better case scenario for every person in the adoption triad, right? That everybody gets to experience a better match for the needs that are involved, both for the child and for the rest of your family. Yeah. That's, you know, it's interesting yeah. you say that because one of the lines I often will use is, to me, the match is, it's important for your family. It's also really important with it. a child with significant disabilities. They need someone who really can go to the mat for them, right? That's right. And that yeah. may not be you. Yeah. Um, and that's you know, okay. I, and that's okay. Yes. That's okay. When it comes to categories of drug use, can you, because there were two factors that I remember being super aware of was the type of substance, the, well, actually three, the type of substance, the intensity of use. So the frequency or the, yeah, how much was used and when, right? What trimester. And uh, I remember being told that because, and you, you alluded to this, like countries like China, you might not get any family background information. Um, but I remember in, we adopted from Florida and we're in Canada and that um, the process there was that the social worker would just ask for self-report. You know, there was no actual measurable thing that would say, yes, we know that you have drank at this point or had this substance in your bloodstream for this long. For, you know, there was no way to measure that. And so uh, because of all the stigma attached to that, the, the warning to us was... Whatever's on the report, presume it's three times as much. And it felt so dishonoring um, to 
not want to trust to start our relationship with the birth family in that way and yet i understand that there's systemic factors that that require people to self-preserve and be careful and they too want their child chosen they're they're planning intentionally for the care of their child who they love deeply so you you don't want to sabotage your chances so i understand that for so many reasons it goes underreported um but with all of those factors in mind, I remember thinking, okay, well, how am I supposed to calculate? How do I calculate that? In addition to, I don't know anything about methamphetamine use in a first trimester. What, that, what does that mean? I don't know what that means. Like, is that a week of detoxing after birth? Is that like developmental delay into their 20s? I don't know. Can I know you, we can't cover all of this, but are there I certain, can try. like, <laughs> yeah, just try like cocaine yeah. use versus, oh, that's the other thing. Yeah. The myth of alcohol versus drug use. That's a common one. People freak out about one because of what's been taught to them. And it's probably not accurate. So I'll just let you have the free yeah. reins on that one. You just tell me what you <laughs> think we need to know about just what we should be aware of. Yeah. What it, and, what it, yeah. And, and this is, you know, obviously because of uh, my involvement in the fetal alcohol syndrome clinic, rarely do we just see alcohol in that clinic. Right, you know, that often there yeah. is other drug exposure and we'll mm-hmm. often see kids who've been exposed to some alcohol, but primarily other drugs. And so this is an, certainly an area of interest and expertise for me. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Davies and I uh, have, have written a couple papers on it and as well as uh, done a foster care tra- training, um, a national foster care training curriculum. and. You just reminded me, it was really funny when we were writing the article, I was talking to him on the phone and I said, you take meth and cocaine and I'll take alcohol and tobacco. And then we were like, oh, <laughs> I hope nobody's listening to us. Um, yeah. But but it is, it. It, yeah, but it yeah. is very interesting. And you've, you've pointed out to, you know, some really important factors is particularly with alcohol use, the problem of people underreporting their use also plays very much into um, the problem of addiction and alcoholism in particular is a disease, right? That, that people yeah. have that they minimize and deny their, right. their problem. And so, yeah. you know, I will say it, it's been very eye opening. I've worked a fair amount with Korean adoption agencies mm-hmm. uh, and in Korea, there isn't the stigma attached to drinking during pregnancy. Mm-hmm. So often the Korean referrals will have very specific amounts okay. of how much women drank. But you're right. I think in general, we have to think, oh, there's exposure. You know, you may want to think it's more than what's reported. Um, We know after years and years of research uh, on prenatal drug and alcohol exposure that by far the most damaging uh, drug to the developing fetus is alcohol. Alcohol is what we call a teratogen. And a teratogen medically means it has been shown to disrupt normal formation of the brain, uh, not only in terms of anatomy and architecture, but also in terms of messaging. And that that brain damage is permanent. Um, The tricky thing about alcohol is that the outcomes for kids exposed to alcohol are really variable. And what we know, like you said, the dose of of alcohol is very important. Um, We also know that in general, if it's an older woman uh, pregnancy, having a pregnancy, like say a woman that's 40 years of 
uh, of age who's an alcoholic who has a baby, it's probably going to be more affected because she's been drinking for a longer time and her tolerance level to alcohol is high. So the fetus experiences more alcohol exposure. Okay. So we do know the most damage is done by women with high tolerance who drink throughout pregnancy, but primarily the first trimester is that really, that's when the central nervous system is being formed. Yeah. It's interestingly also when the face is being formed, which is why sometimes mm, the face I is a see. good marker for us. Aha. Yeah. So, uh, so, you know, um, characteristics of the birth mother, certainly a dose and timing of alcohol use. And then there is this sort of difficult thing to quantify, which is there are some fetuses that are more susceptible to the effects of alcohol than others. And we did uh, a few years ago uh, a study uh, at our clinic where we looked at 40 sets of twins and looked at outcomes. And what was fascinating is that the identical twins were always affected the same. The fraternal twins were not. And in half of the fraternal twins, one of the twins had fetal alcohol syndrome and the other did not. Wow. Now, full-blown fetal alcohol syndrome. Uh, now, the ones that didn't have full-blown fetal alcohol syndrome often still had disabilities much, much more mild or moderate in nature. Okay. And what that tells us is there's something at the level of the baby's own metabolism alcohol that can either be protective or not protective against alcohol exposure. Um, we also know that if I always like to think of it as you think of the brain as a circuit board, depending on how many, how much birth mom drank and when different wires are clipped, right? So we see yeah. kids, sometimes, they, you know, there are a lot of things we see in common. We see a lot of ADHD and impulse control problems, but we often will see these kids with a lot of learning disabilities and behavior problems right next to areas of strength. Like I had a patient, a Russian adoptee, who was an elite level gymnast, and yet yeah. she really struggled in school. So you see this patchy uh, area of strength and weakness. Yeah. You also have to think about, we saw a young man in clinic who, you know, both his birth parents, incredibly intelligent, their IQs were in the 130s, like super high. Wow. And birth mom drank a fifth of vodka throughout the first trimester. His IQ was 110. Now, did he probably, he probably took a huge hit to his IQ, but because yeah. his genetic potential was so high, it was not nearly as dramatic, right? right? I mean, if he'd okay. had an IQ destined to be 100 and took a 30-point hit, that would be a big deal. Yeah. Now, not to say that he didn't have some struggles with learning and behavior. Sure. Yeah. So, um, so prenatal alcohol exposure is tricky in that uh, there are a lot of factors that go into it. But in general, um, if you are exposed to alcohol during pregnancy at any sort of moderate level, you would expect learning disabilities and some and often difficulty with um, with emotional regulation are the two most common things we see. We know that ADHD is by far the most common learning disability that, you know, prefrontal cortex, the front part of the brain, that's our secretary in the brain, um, is the most affected, uh, sort of followed by math and language disabilities. Um, interestingly enough, when we look at cocaine, of course, in the 1980s, there was a, you know, crack cocaine epidemic, and there was a lot of concern about crack babies and the devastation they were going to experience. And that research didn't pan out. Interesting. Uh, cocaine definitely could increase the risk of prematurity uh, and because it's a vasoconstricted and, and the babies would come early. But it does not have the pattern of learning disability, the reliable pattern of learning disability that we see 
in prenatal alcohol exposure. A lot of people who did research on cocaine in the 80s went back to alcohol research when it, it wasn't showing as much a yeah. pattern. Yeah. Um, the other one that's very interesting is methamphetamine, which is a little bit of a newer drug, you know, yeah. relatively speaking. Um, but what we know about methamphetamine is surprising because we see what it does to the user, right? Mm -hmm. And yet the impact on the fetus is much more subtle in mm -hmm. terms of we do know that there are, there is a pattern of big motor skill delay in the first yeah. two years of life sometimes can get better. We know there can be a withdrawal from methamphetamine actually in the newborn period. Yeah. And we also know that there are some indications that, you know, eight to 10 years down the line, these are kids who do also seem to have a slightly increased risk of learning disabilities and ADHD, but not nearly as dramatic as alcohol. Okay. Um, opiates are very interesting in that mm -hmm. You remember, you know, we don't have any naturally occurring uh, alcohol receptors in our brain, which is why okay. it causes damage. Yes. But we have naturally occurring opiate receptors in our brain. And so opiates like heroin, uh, oxycodone, um, and even, you know, methadone, what they, what they do to the brain is they don't change the structure and architecture, but they upregulate those receptors. So when a baby's born, they go through withdrawal. And mm -hmm. so, you know, the neonatal abstinence syndrome is something we've seen an increase in in nurseries all over the, the country. Mm -hmm. But once you get out of that newborn period, typically you have a pretty normal brain. And so it always sounds very wow. strange to say yeah. that you'd rather be born to a heroin addict than an alcoholic right. because the long-term impact, we do know what one of the best studies was done in Canada where they sort of looked long-term uh, at children that stayed in the birth home versus uh, children who were adopted out who had opiate exposure. And they did see a slightly increased risk of teenage uh, anxiety and depression uh, okay. in kids who'd been exposed to opiates during pregnancy. But, um, which always raises the question, was the yeah. birth mother self-medicating, right, for alcohol and depression? Yeah. Uh, and then, but but in terms of IQ and uh, sort of basic IQ that was really unscathed in kids with significant, if it was just, you know, again, it's hard to control for yeah. just pure opiate. Yes. The well, problem I is, say, yeah. I mean, even the risk of depression and anxiety in teenage years, I'm thinking how much of that is just attributed to the fact that they were placed for adoption. Right. I mean, the, the adoption trauma, the attachment right. trauma has significant impacts on our mental health right. later on. So right. that wouldn't be a surprise if those are the control subjects or the ones that are staying with their birth families, right? right. Wow. I, you know, I often, yeah. and you, you raise a very interesting point that um, one of them, I think the most complicated things about this field is I call these children my onion children, right? Because mm -hmm. they have so many layers. Mm -hmm. So you may have a child with prenatal exposures, with the trauma, you know, early childhood abuse or neglect, yeah. adoption placement, with dis which mm -hmm. disrupts attachment, and yeah. they may have a genetic potential for mental illness, which expresses itself in adolescence, right. or they may have a genetic predisposition to addiction. And all of those things, it's this really uh, complicated tapestry of um, things. And I see the whole range. I see some kids that, you know, when I did their pre-adoption referral, I was really worried about them. Mm. And for reasons that we don't necessarily understand, they 
they really seem to go through life unscathed. Uh, it's this concept of resilience, right? Why yeah. are some children who have these experiences really profoundly impacted? And why are some that seem yeah. seem very resilient to even yeah. the same trauma an orphan mate had, right? Right. Um, so they are, you know, they're 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 complicated kids, and um, really, you know, my I think my my major message to to people is to follow them really like a hawk so that if they have learning disabilities, we can get on it right away, right? Learned Don't wait and watch. Yep. Yeah. If they are in adolescence, you see any any signs of anxiety or depression, get them into counseling. Get the, I mean, I would prescribe a therapist for everybody, quite frankly. But, yeah. um, you know, get, you know, watch their, mm -hmm. monitor their mental health. Make sure they know their risks, gene potential genetic risks of addiction. Be very frank with them about, you know, in their teenage years that, you know, you, may have had addiction in your in your family history you may be alert i call it allergic right to alcohol yeah yeah uh react very differently than other people i i think it's so hard to imagine when you are in the proposal phase of adoption and you read some of the paperwork and it's so in, it's so normal to wonder what what would this? What is this picture going to look like in 20 years from now? Right. So, wanting to kind of see the trajectory of what we can expect, and like anything else, that is impossible to nail down and to perfectly envision, and that's okay. Uh, but I don't think it's it's I don't think it's avoidable for people to want to predict a bit, and that's just a protective preparation. Right. mechanism, right? I want to be best prepared for this. So to some extent, we can't avoid the question, but we also have to acknowledge there is no way for us to paint an exact picture of what you can expect. Are there things specific to what you have seen in patterns because you've been doing this for so long that if there's, you know, moderate, mild to moderate um, alcohol exposure throughout pregnancy, what that typically looks like when kids are, you know, in their middle school years or beyond, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh gosh, that's a really hard question. It is, isn't uh, it? I know. It it's is. Unfair, I mean, but... it, it is. I mean, the hard part is we may not we may not know the child how much exactly the child was exposed to, right? That's and right, yeah. um, we may not know what their genetic potential is, yeah. and we yeah. may not know um, what we may not know what the family's history of learning disability is, right? So yeah. when I talk about ADHD being the most common learning disabilities we see in prenatal, in kids who are exposed to alcohol prenatally, yeah. we also have to remember that ADHD is very inheritable. I mean, if you have a parent with ADHD, you're about 60% likely yeah. <laughs> to have ADHD. Yes. Um, so, you know, what I would say for mild to moderate alcohol use, moderate I get a little nervous about, right? because I know there are some kids exposed, fetuses exposed to moderate alcohol exposure who can really have some significant issues. Yeah. For mild exposure, um, and I do, you know, occasionally get panic phone calls from women who, you know, drank before they knew they were pregnant, right? Yeah. And are, are worried about the impact. And, you know, what I will often say to them is, well, first of all, don't borrow worry, right? You know, we all we can do at this point is to watch these children very closely. And so early development, get them to early intervention if they need it. 
Um, and I would say for a kid with, you know, moderate to severe alcohol exposure, um, what I'm worried about with them is all areas of development, motor development, big motor skills, fine motor skills, language, and um, what, you know, what they early sort of problem solving uh, for kids. And um, if they have delays, get them early intervention. The time where we seem are really able to test for learning disabilities and even for IQ, IQ really isn't in stable until age eight. And remember, you may have a kid with sig very significant alcohol exposure or even the full fetal alcohol syndrome who look pretty good as kids because we don't expect them to do more higher order thinking, right? We don't expect them to do sustained right. focus attention, yeah. do complicated things with language. It doesn't stand do out. Problem solving. Yes. Yeah. And so often, you know, I'm saying to families, please have their learning looked at in detail at mm -hmm. seven to eight years of age. Because if they have a subtle learning disability, I have a, you know, a son with dyslexia, which was pretty subtle. And yet it had significant impact for him in school. Yeah. So, um, you know, so, so get that really detailed um, IQ testing, um, learning disability evaluation. It's basically what we call neuropsychometric testing. It tells you how your brain works. What are your yeah. strengths? What are your weaknesses? So that if you have weaknesses, we can bolster them with your strengths, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so it's, um, but you know, if I were adopting a kid with, you know, fetal, uh, with prenatal alcohol exposure, things I would think about are attention deficit disorder. I would move to a school district that has excellent special ed <laughs> in terms of supports, right, for a child because they, they may need it. Again, yeah. I'm preparing for the worst, right? Yeah. Um, you know, there are often markers or clues in the referral that this will be a severely impacted child. I talked about one of them, really poor brain growth. We know that the facial features, if you have all three facial features of fetal alcohol syndrome, that is a window into your brain that, that predicts a more damaged brain. Okay. We also know that growth stunting, and a lot of people forget that prenatal alcohol exposure can stunt growth both in and out of the womb, and it is a marker for brain dysfunction. So sometimes when I'm looking at a referral, I can say, oh, you know, so far this kid doesn't have a face, their growth looks good, could they have learning disabilities down the road? Yes. Are they likely to have intellectual disability? Probably no, okay. but they may have trouble with behavior regulation. These are kids okay. that, you know, yeah. we've got really good evidence-based tools to help kids regulate their emotion, make sure that's on your plate. Um, you know, get a good child psychiatrist who can help you with med management for impulsivity, for attention yeah. deficit, because those are tools that sometimes will really help um, and get parental support. That's the other thing is, you know, sometimes these really challenging kids, you need a village and you mentioned yes, it already, you need a village yeah. and yeah. parent support for kids, for, you know, other families that are raising these children can be really imperative. I had uh, created a, a course that really centered around helping couples who were adopting to center their own relationship and, and ensure that they were, you know, creating a secure base and, and how we learn to attune to one another gives us the skills to attune to our kids' needs and to adapt to what they need. And and as I was writing the modules for that course, I kind of stopped at module nine and I'm like, no, something's missing. <laughs> something's missing. I'm like, what do I know something's missing? It's the village. Because m more times than not, if you are an adoptive family, it comes inherently with complex needs of some kind, 
of some kind. And yes, it varies and the type varies and the amount varies. But you, I want people to assume that when they begin their journey to adopt, that they're going to need a support network that maybe they haven't assumed they were going to need. And so not to wait until your child is four or five, six years old to realize reactively, oh no, we're in over our heads or this feels really hard and we feel isolated and alone and I can't get out of the house. And it's, you know, we, we try to help parents identify ahead of time. You might not need exactly, know exactly what you're going to need, but to go in with the mindset that you will need more than just you is such an, um, um, an empowering position, I think, while you have the resources and you can think this through and you can assess, do we need to move? Do we need to be in an environment or a community that reflects our kids' racial identity, to reflect trauma evidence-based services, to reflect adoptive groups? Do we have, right? And, and so to th- I think it's just so important that we shouldn't neglect that piece and just think we're this little insular kind of siloed little group of people that are just going to get through the adoption part and then we just carry on as though we're a bio family and it doesn't for the most part look like that I mean that is probably the wisest advice is uh you know to go in expecting that you will need support and have supports built in I think that's really um really fabulous um yeah do you know do yeah in your experience what types of resources for kids particularly who have experienced this um prenatal exposure piece what are the types of services you would say watch for this research that look for those Mm -hmm. things yeah can you name some of those well i would say that i think um if you have a child who may have been exposed uh you know especially to alcohol prenatally it might be worth your while to have a specialty evaluation by a fetal alcohol syndrome clinic. Okay. Um, the good news, especially for Canada, is that there is there are a lot of people who know a lot about mm-hmm. fetal alcohol spectrum disorder in Canada. And so even if things are going really well, I still think that can give you, again, a better window into how uh, the brain is and what potentially to expect down the road. So if I build my village, um, you know, you have to think of school, of course. You have to think of um, people who understand adoption, um, like you, honestly, you know, people who, and often it's people who've walked the talk. I just, you know, it's it's an interesting thing that understand adoption. I think you have to know who in your community, you know, I always tell families, it's really good to know your mental health community. Yeah. who has who has experience with early childhood trauma right yeah um, as kids get older uh, are there therapists that ha- have some adoption sta- savvy that the team could talk to as well yeah. um, and you know obviously good medical care I'm biased about that um, but you know uh, parenting is hard period and parenting yeah. is a leap of faith period right <laughs> we never know what we're gonna get or what's down the road i mean even as a pediatrician i was shocked by how much i felt like i didn't know yeah but um but adopt uh, you know adoptive parenting is special because it does have that layer of complexity yeah it has the unknowns uh often yeah. the unknowns of genetic and and uh, early womb environment um but it is you know it is impactful throughout the life cycle to be adopted yes. Yes. Uh, and you know you 
you did it beautifully mentioned all the things you know do you want to have the only asian kid in your community um it's a transracial adoption or african-american child those things can be very important uh in subtle ways that we might not appreciate you know i remember saying oh you know but our family's colorblind that's lovely but the world is not and so you know being able to prepare and be honest with yourself and with others about things that may come up in the absence of a crystal ball, but you can prepare for a lot of them. Yeah, and I think it sets us on a trajectory of assuming we don't have to know it all when we begin the journey, but this is never going to be an end of learning. If we stay open, right, I'm every day reading something new that I go, oh, goodness, that did not occur to me, or I (laughs) did not think from that lens, and the more adoptee voices I listen to, where I think, man, from that perspective, that enlightens that's just so much for me from what my kids vantage point would be that they can't yet articulate but I now know what's likely happening for them and I can be attuned to and responsive to but it doesn't end I mean we're right. entering teen years but it's uh, <laughs> every day is still a thing that I'm like oh boy yeah, yeah. I think yeah. the other thing I'm very cognizant of is I remember you know if you look at sort of the mental health literature there is seems to be an over-representation of adopted um, children in the mental health, uh, that seek mental health services. Uh, And I remember thinking, oh, you know, is that kind of depressing? But I'll have to tell you that if you, you know, the Joint Council of International Children's Services, which existed for many, many years, would survey adoptive parents every year, and 97% of adoptive parents felt like they were with the children they should have been with regardless of need for mental health services or special medical needs. And, um, you know, I think that, that, you know, if you do, you know, adoption is special, you may, they have special needs, but they also have a special richness to, to raising them. And I think it's hard to, um, to pinpoint that, but it's very, very real. And what a statistic, 97% of adoptive parents feel like they are with the children they were meant to be with. We need to end there. That that was like the the end of the rainbow just landed on the ground there. That was lovely. Thank you for that hope and for that uh, just all the concrete information we managed to pack in to this uh, 45 minute conversation. That was incredible. Um, I'm so grateful that you do the work that you do. I wish I had known about you a long time ago, we would have been on the phone with you in particular. Um, and I would, yeah, I, I'm excited to share the resources that you have put forward and I'll, I'll tag some things in the show notes as well to make sure people can follow up. Um, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thanks for spending time with me today. Remember to check out the show notes for related resources. You can follow me on Facebook and Instagram, or you can also subscribe to my online learning page at my.thrive-life forward slash LRL series, where you'll get updates, extra tools for your toolkit. And if there's a topic that you want me to cover in this podcast, please shoot me a message. I would love to hear from you. Shoulder to shoulder with you, knee deep in this mud. I will see you back here next time.